welcome to Ludicrously Specific, an internet-based audio podcast about three feature film entertainments that feature an unlikely or improbable connection. My name's Doug, and my favorite film that features Yafet Koto that's not alien is Bone. And my name's Darren, and my favorite uh, Yafet Koto film that is a uh, feature film that is not alien that just rolled off the tongue <laughs> is Midnight Run. Off to a great start. And my name's Steve. And my favourite Yafit Koto film that is not alien is The Running Man. Woo! And that was a mm. tough choice because there was about three others that I could have picked. <laughs> uh, right before I roll, I said, so are we all going to pick Blue Collar? <laughs> <laughs> Blue Collar. Or Truck Turner. Uh, Truck Turner's a great one. So yes. many choices. So many. So and, many. Um, why, there's a couple of reasons we're talking about Yafit Koto, but let's focus on the theme of the episode first. Well, our theme of our episode is three movies from 1975 where Yafat Koto receives second billing. Now, you're going to need to remember that one because we're not going to repeat it again. I probably will. <laughs> we probably will. <laughs> yes, yes, we probably will. Um, we'll help you out, listener. And this was supposed to be our Yafat Koto tribute episode because after our previous episode a couple of months ago, Yafat Koto passed away. And we were, of course, at the time, we cursed ourselves by saying we're going to be doing an episode every month Guaranteed, <laughs> yes. and that did not happen, unfortunately. So this was supposed to be about a month ago we were recording this, but it life was, happens. Well, basically, my life happened. <laughs> yes, more specifically, it was, it yes, was my fault. I got sick. I had commitments. So I got sick a second time. Thank you, school camp. <laughs> Nothing like cleaning up a twelve-year-old's puke to make you puke for three days afterwards. We'll move on from that. That's enough. Uh, enough said about that. But Would you rather do that or watch... Uh, oh, no, we'll get to that movie later. <laughs> we'll movies we don't want to preempt... Spoilers! Uh, yes, yes. Um, so, but, but before we... Uh, I mean, obviously, since we haven't talked for two months, I've watched about 63 billion films. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I think, we, you know, we, I've... I've watched six films that had trains in them, for Pete's sake. <laughs> and I, I watched those same six films. Oh, there we go. I don't remember too many trains and those stuff. And Skeet was probably at camp or something. I was at camp, but I did watch a lot of films, actually, because oh, we, cool. we had my, uh, my B-Fest, which, because of, interestingly, we went back into a brief lockdown and then came right. back out. It was only a three-day one, but it kind of threw the timing out. So instead of a 24-hour B-Fest this year, we ran two 12-hour ones, which actually worked pretty successfully and may actually happen again next year. So booking two weekends because cool. people actually saw all the movies rather than right. the inside of their islands at four <laughs> Yes. So, Which meant that you had to program better than I um, did, yeah. I didn't just I couldn't just throw any odd shit on at three o'clock in the morning and you know, <laughs> sleep through this one. I don't know what it is. <laughs> My god, I can't oh, right. even remember what played that's so, so, so three uh, three highlights. Tell me your first highlight, Ski, which might be a B Fest highlight. Um a B Fest one of my one of my B Fest highlights, I'm enough because I played one of my favourite films of all time, Empire Records. Yeah. Which I love. But oddly enough, the one on the first day of B-Fest that I really, really loved was The Thin Man. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, 1934. Testify. Uh, I had never seen that before, and that I'd was terrific. I have never seen it either. I heard a lot about it, and I've, there's one of the people I follow on Twitter, yeah. uh, Jessica Ritchie, uh, who I've uh, known from a long time back from uh, Message Boards. Uh, I think she now writes for... Uh, well, several websites around, uh, but uh, she has championed this film on Twitter all the time, so yeah. I think eventually they had to put this in there. Oh, wow. I'd and seen it quite a lot before. I've never seen the sequels, but it, it, again, it really held up on that screening. It, it, it seems yeah. like a, a certain type of cinephile, a film that they find aspirational, that they too want to be completely drunk all the time. <laughs> and hanging out with somebody else who's also drunk all the time yeah, the, and making repartee. The banter was just amazing. It's just... 
the you know we're talking 1934, so we're not talking a recent film, but a film that yeah. just killed for a room full of, of movie lovers. And as you say, it's William Powell, Myrna Loy, and it is a what a romantic comedy murder mystery. Oh, and and the third build must be Aster, the, uh, the the Scots Aster, Terrier. the Scots Terrier, of course. Yeah, yes. I can't forget Aster. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, great film because it's it's. Uh, I was hoping to just have this nice kind of lightweight comedy when everyone was was awake, and but it turned out to be an actual really good watch. It was just one of my favourite films that I'd seen, mm-hmm. and I've, I've been trying to see a few more sort of vintage films that I haven't got around to recently. But um, yeah, that one. If that if the rest of the films are even half as good, then I'm in for those as well. Uh, yeah, I don't. Really that was one actually. More. My favourite yeah. one of that day was Flashpoint. Which Flashpoint. Uh, oh, yeah. I, but I, I won't speak about that one because actually, yeah, I will speak about Go that on. one. Because we, I, I think I reserve speaking about it because we're going to try to do a. Um, oh, we were at one point uh, themed yes. uh, thing about Vietnam veterans and uh, and re- I, I forget what our theme was going to be, but obviously, yeah. like life happened again. <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, Flashpoint is uh, this Chris Christopherson Treat Williams film where they play. Um, border officers back in the day where border officers in the States didn't mean racist assholes. It just meant <laughs> bored veterans that wanted an easy job. <laughs> and um, and one day they stumble across, uh, one of them stumbles across uh, an old truck with a lot of money in it and a skeleton. And a lot of stuff unfolds from that, which I won't spoil. Mm. Um one of my um, favorite things, though, is just how um, unforced the film is and how mm. much it's um, about hanging out. Like, it's very, even though there's a thriller kind of structure that evolves, um, it's just hanging out with Chris Christopherson mostly. Mm. And <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. And it's a truly adult movie, too. I, yeah. I think it played, um, that played it. It was actually, I did actually, I, yeah. well, I've suddenly realized I'm actually thinking uh, a week before we first, that it was actually, the Thin Man was from our birthday marathon. That was oh, so right. close together this year that I've just combined yeah, the two together. And so it was that day we Because played, that was, um, that was right, Darren's yeah, programming. Played, that was, yeah, yeah you picked point. that movie. I was, it wasn't quite as big on it as everyone else in the room, but I still okay. enjoyed it for what it was. It's just, it was not exactly me, but yeah. I know it was definitely Darren, and I definitely, it, was, it was definitely Doug. Yeah. Mm. And it's, yeah, there's just, it was... Yeah, something about that film. And also, uh, Rip Torn just plays Rip Torn <laughs> as a sheriff, really. Slightly corrupt, yeah. as Rip Torn probably would have been. As a sheriff. <laughs> if he was a sheriff, not, not saying that. Would no, no, not no. Not imputing no, the man's character. But, allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> Has it really been so, that long since we recorded that we forgot it's, to cover that one? It seems, yeah. Wow. Well, we're back. Um, so... My first pick, um, I'm shortening down my list here, um, but I, um, I've i been showing um, a few films to my folks, and in fact, each of these three movies is one I showed to my folks. This one is Lily Darling, starling, starring, <laughs> starring Julie Andrews, uh, directed by Blake Edwards, and it's a... Um, it's uh, set in World War One, and um, uh, Lily Darling, uh, Julie Andrews' character, Lily something or other, is a music hall um, impres- uh, a music hall ingenue. Well, a big time actress, right? Music hall person 
who um, is, it uh, turns out, also an undercover German spy. What a twist. <laughs> what a twist. So she's essentially a bad guy, and she has to romance Rock Hudson. And it's a really, it's got a, a really haunting opening musical song called, um, opening called Whispers in the Dark, which also ends on that amazing song. It is a musical throughout as her character does sing a lot. Uh, Rock Hudson is actually really quite good as the, um, the American um, who she has to uh, romance and falls in love with. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and it has some of the uh, best um, aerial battle scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Um, it's just... It's probably where most of the budget went, right. but it's um, it's just a really good film. Apparently, there are several versions of it. I saw the one that isn't that well-reviewed, um, but highly recommend it. It's uh, and Ju- Julie Andrews, certain scenes of this, she is as sexy as hell, and I didn't <laughs> think I would sexy ever Julie say Andrews. that. Oh, the hills are alive with the sound of four. four. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we're going to move. Uh, well, we're going to We might have time for more than three movies because we're moving through these quickly tonight. We're in a rush. Um, which is good because my next movie is actually two movies. Um, cheat, cheat. Yes, yeah. I'm putting them together because they are. The same genre, the same studio, and only a couple of years apart. Uh, at uh, B-Fest, I played uh, Iron Monkey, one of my favourite martial arts movies, which is mm-hmm. phenomenal. Always recommend that one to anybody that would say is what's a good martial arts movie. From the 90s, straight there, bang. Not that I get asked that specific question that often, but how, anyway. It did put me in the mood to go and watch some Shaw Brothers films. So I put on, just randomly because of the name, Kid with a Golden Arm. Uh, not to be confused with um, Man with Golden, Golden Arm. Arm. Yeah, exactly. So, Frank Sinatra. Uh, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> not, a Frank, <laughs> not a Frank Sinatra movie, no. But <laughs> Well, I mean, Man with the Golden Arm is also like a drug dependency thing. <laughs> exactly. So it's not exactly a swinging one to be <laughs> Exactly. Whereas Kid with the Golden Arm is just a kick-ass Shaw Brothers movie. And about a week later, I, finished, I followed it up with Five Elements Ninja, which mm. is also a kick-ass movie. Two years apart, similar plots, but... Very different approach. Kip of the Golden Arm is it's all about a MacGuffin. It's, there's a, a shipment of gold that has to be transported. So the movie starts with this huge cast of characters. And a huge cast of characters in the Shaw Brother movies means not many of those guys are getting through to the mm-hmm. end of the film. Because they're all there to protect the, this caravan of gold from the tribe that wants to take it. This And the tribe that wants to take the clan that wants to take it has four leaders. Uh, golden Arm, Silver Spear, Bronze Head... And, and, and the I one I can these never aren't remember. metaphorical no these are not metaphorical these are um, <laughs> brass head sorry not bronze head I got the wrong one uh, I've always forget the no your one. metals man but yeah, they are literally that he's got he's got a brass head and he heads butts people to death and golden <laughs> arm has golden ringlets and is practically invulnerable and basically the whole movie is just little fight scenes between as, as each of these leaders come in and the fight scenes elevate and elevate until you get basically a massive showdown at the end um it basically reunites the cast of uh the five deadly venoms and this with the same director oh, okay. so um chong Che, yeah and chien son is the the main character and his name is iron feet which all the characters 
which is great for me. I'm completely face blind on every movie, no matter whether it's American, English, or Chinese. I'm right. always, it's that guy. They all are named after either what they do with their bodies or what they do with their weapons. There's, right. there's long axe and short axe that work as a duo, this iron feet. And so he, he takes on uh, Philip Kwok in a fight scene at the end, which is just breathtaking. Two years after that, out comes Five Elements Ninjas. So is that earth, air, air water, water, fire, and wood? Wood, yes, indeed. Exactly. Oh, my God. And I is, was trying to make a joke, and I actually, actually got fat. You got so. perfectly right. <laughs> and it is... Way to reverse dodgeable. Insane. <laughs> it is a movie which has, once again, starts with a huge cast of characters. There's about 20 people in the opening scene doing a martial arts tournament to see who's the, the, yes, the chief, yes. the best ones around. But then it ends up with them all basically having to take on the Five Elements Ninjas. The Wood Ninjas, for instance, dress like trees. <laughs> the Earth Ninjas burrow through the ground like uh, moles and God. bounce out to attack you. And Doug is <laughs> frantically scribbling this down. I, I don't want you to tell me anything else. I just want to watch it and love it. It is the bloodiest martial arts movie from the Shaw Brothers I've ever seen. Oh, wow. You see a martial arts movie and there's somebody who gets hurt and they, oh, and they fall down and a little bit of red paint comes yeah. out of their mouth. This is arterial sprays. This right. is people getting arms and legs pulled off. They, they disassemble one ninja, and I'm just like, was he made of Meccano? But he's just <laughs> popping off. Right. And you can tell how excited I'm about this movie, and I have to recommend it and watch it again. It is wow. just a joy of Shaw Brothers insanity. The only crazier Shaw Brothers movies I've seen are the, the real, the kind black, of the, the, the black, black magic, magic type ones. ones. Yeah. Right. And yeah. this is the just... The full-out ones. This yeah. one is tries Snake to be kind of... The like. realistic but then just starts getting Not crazier realistic. and crazier until eventually you just really? go they can't keep doing this thing. <laughs> they can't top themselves spray of blood on the screen no they can they honestly could is this off Tubi um, I found it on Prime I think actually oh, Prime Video good. so good. Um, yeah. yeah so definitely if you like martial arts and uh, and dismemberments then uh, Five Elements Ninjas is for you, but also Kid with a Golden Arm is fantastic. Is that also off Prime? Or? I think I picked both of them up off Prime, yeah. Brilliant. Though there's the Shaw Brothers movies on pretty much every streaming service, it seems. Um, there's some, some of them are on Netflix now, I think. Right. Yeah, there's a few on Netflix, including Flying Guillotine. Oh, um, although I don't think Flying Guillotine 2, which is the better Flying Guillotine film. But, you know. And Doug is the person to talk to about Flying Guillotine films. I have strong opinions <laughs> on Flying Guillotine films. When um, it comes to streaming, just a, a quick thing. There's an amazing app called Just Watch. I don't know if any yeah. of our listener out there <laughs> or is aware of it, um, but it's... You just put in what you want to see um, in New Zealand and um, search for it, and it will tell you whether it's on a streaming site or not. I was having it's, a massive rant It's on been Twitter. very helpful yeah. already. It's Recently about the fact that none of these streaming services, the big services, can build a search engine. Yes. And someone from Amazon Prime's help desk actually tweeted me back saying, thank you for bringing this to our attention. I'm like, well, there we go. I cracked it after 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> all, that all we need to do if they fix it? <laughs> no, they haven't. No. <laughs> I put in 80s movies. I had nine things come up, and none of them were from the 1980s. I put the same search into Just Watch, and I got... Everything. It's yeah. just Everything. awesome. I am um, so to just extend on that just watch thing, I actually use just watch through Letterboxd because if you have a pro membership, uh you can I think it you may require a pro membership to use the just watch integration. I'm not sure. Uh it may work without it. But um so I have my uh list of my watch list and then I can filter that by things that are currently available to stream. And so that will list all the films that I've marked as saying, that's something I want to watch. And then I've marked chosen my streaming services. And it'll say, 
oh yeah, that's that'll be on either Netflix or Prime or Bema Film or something, you know, something, and then you drill down into the actual film to figure out which one it's on. But that's a great way to. Um, I mean, there may be there's probably similar ways to do it in Just Watch, but it's just such an elegant integration because when I'm reading Letterboxd and somebody's like, hey, I watched this film with Dismemberment and Ninjas, all I have to do is <laughs> click it on the watch list and then like, you Boom, know, there we go. Next time I. Um, I'm not watching one of my second run Blu-rays. I'll <laughs> be like, oh, not a six, n- another 60s Central European film. Instead, I'm going <laughs> to... Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Finally, a practical reason for me to probably start using Letterboxd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there are many, but um, my second uh, film... Uh, so I'm actually going to cheat and use four because uh, Richard Fleischer has been my discovery since the last time. Uh, he was a Hollywood director of whom I knew nothing. And then I finally, Soylent Green turned up on Netflix and I'd never seen it because I knew the punchline. Um, and I just started watching it and it's okay. Um, but there's some really great directorial things about it. Um, and some really bold choices. And I'm sorry, I'm like, who, who is this guy? And I turned around and realized that I, I was sitting on a couple movies of his, um, that I own Violent Saturday and the Boston Strangler on Blu-ray, and I never looked at them. And then also I was um, doing this um, train movie marathon, which I mentioned, and uh, his film The Narrow Margin was one that I'd shortlisted Mm. for that. So um, all of those four movies have strengths, and actually probably the best was Violent Saturday, but I wanted to talk about The Boston Strangler because it was easily the most unexpected because uh, it is about The Boston Strangler, uh, who I don't know much about, and they apparently took quite a few liberties. Um, and the first half is a procedural where you don't meet the Boston Strangler, but Tony Curtis is the lead build actor in the film, and he's not on screen. So it's like, well, when are we <laughs> going to get to this? And then thankfully about the time we're like, this is going to be like the shortest starring appearance by anybody, we switch to Tony Curtis's perspective. Um, but... It's just formally nuts. There is so much split screen. There's so much trick photography and split diopter and mm. all these things that just um, and and so you just ride these waves of just it, it really crazy. And then suddenly near the end, it just strips back and like and and it gets into this weird thing where it's like he's uh, he's arrested like. 25 minutes before the end of the movie and they do the interrogations and stuff. And I think the last 10 minutes is pretty much Tony Curtis giving a monologue in a white room in like a single shot, um, shot at like an MCU or something, you know, couldn't be like any planer and it's brilliant. And it's just like, I think that's like the sign of like these true pros. And that's kind of why I'm fascinated about exploring more of his career is this whole like managing to bring in the the classic nuts and bolts of understanding storytelling, but also being willing to completely experiment at any time. And um, yeah, and it was just a film that was sitting on my um, shelf for a while. That I'm like, oh, I picked that up for five bucks, but it's probably quite unpleasant. Who who knows when I want to watch it? And it is, you know, I mean, it's a film about <laughs> the Boston Strangler, <laughs> but um, in the sense of, ca- I mean, the, and the split screen stuff often really works in the sense of capturing the panic of, because uh, the first half is really as much about 
the town and the, and the fear that runs through the town as it is about any individual character. So, um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to a few more of his. And I just picked up See No Evil, which has um, Mia Farrow as a blind woman who's, um, uh, I think, being pursued by somebody or um, it's some kind of thriller. I, d- I don't know, but I'll find out. Nice. Right. Well, that's, that actually sounds awesome. I must uh, must look into uh, Boston Strangler. I have a feeling I saw it as a kid. Or you mentioned, saw I think, the... when I mentioned that you said you saw it at six or something, and I'm yeah, like, yeah, I... I, I, that may explain a lot. <laughs> well, it may. It's, but I, I all kind of get the feeling it might have just been watched the first five or six, six minutes of it when it was on TV or right. saw the trailer, but because. Your description of all the different film styles, etc., doesn't doesn't ring the bells. So that may be one to to track down. Nobody, the Bob ah. Odenkirk ah. film. Uh, I'd, I just want to touch on this one very briefly because I don't want to spoil anything about it. Other than if it's still in the cinemas, and I have no idea, no finger on the pulse at the moment. But it is just a glorious action film. The last twenty minutes is just pure <laughs> pure joy it's um in an that's action not even point the best scene i don't think no i don't think it's the best scene but it's just uh yeah. and again i don't want to spoil why it's pure joy yes but it is uh, the uh, the best scene is a scene that is in the trailer um, or well actually there's so many it's great. It is a really fun film. Who would have thought that you'd be able to say that Bob Odenkirk is the new action star <laughs> and and kind of mean it? Yeah. It's um, it's just really fun, and it's the sort of thing that we should be seeing on the big screen right yeah. now. It's, I mean, Godzilla versus um, King Kong versus Kong. Godzilla. Yeah. Godzilla, or Godzilla versus Kong. Kong. Godzilla versus Kong again, just. Just pure joy. Two, two giant fuck off li- uh, <laughs> monsters fighting each other. They, we don't care about the humans, no. um, and we don't have They're to. There just to push the plot along a little further, so but, we get the monsters but out. But they give us what we want. We get the snakes on a plane. You mean a tribute to two thousand one: A Space Odyssey, Stargate Sea? Yeah, well, we <laughs> get that too. Yeah, Unexpected. that's what I wanted. Right. Unexpected. <laughs> we, we we saw that as a as a road trip out to the to the IMAX. We saw them. Yes, you know, took Aiden, yeah. took my son out. And yeah, giant screen, the, the soundtrack deafening everybody, and that was yeah. you know that was the way to see that movie. There is something to be said, especially after the virus. It, there is something to be said for pure popcorn films. Yeah. There is a reason that they exist. There's a reason that we enjoy them. Uh, it's just pure mind-numbing. Just. <laughs> It's great. It's great, and it was great to see it after walking through the depressing shithole that is our major cinema now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as you mentioned yes. in our last episode, Event Cinemas in Queen Street looks like it's been abandoned. Oh. There's, I'm walking past it. There was the in the food hall. There's tins of food left in empty shops. There, there is all. Oh it's God. just been rubbed oh. off, and it looks like the videos I watch from people going through abandoned buildings, or you know, something out of Chernobyl. It's ridiculous how bad it looks and how much work will have to go into making that place anything remotely, you know. Well, they just need people. And, but and, yeah, I don't know. If they, I don't know if they will. No. And there's an article uh, which I was uh, on. Was it one of our oh, it stuff? Or oh, stuff. I think it was. Uh, definitely on stuff which I'll link yeah. to, which has for people that haven't been 
into Auckland or people that aren't maybe listening from other places. Uh, and it really shows distant pictures there, which makes it really show just how bad the central city has gotten in, the, in the, just the last year. Yeah. Even though we've had the, probably the least effect of COVID in any yeah. country, it's still pretty bad out there. There's there's a lot of buildings, a lot of businesses closed up on that main street. That yeah, used to be and, the heart and Newmarket has a similar issue where they built this great new shopping center and everybody's going there. But the actual street of Newmarket is full of empty shops. And, oh, yeah, and there's also just a lot of you know, poverty at the moment. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people whose jobs didn't survive COVID. And no. there's a lot of mm-hmm. people who were pretty economically precarious in the first place. And it's true that we're better off than a lot of other countries, but yeah. we still have a... It's, it's still had an effect, yeah. and you don't mm-hmm. see it until you actually get in the middle of that place, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I brought the uh, down. I brought the time down, so I'll bring it down even further, because I watched a movie which... Hardcore! No, a movie called The Return. Now, this is bloody obscure, and the only reason I watched it, and I think it came up on Tubi, and I looked at it and I went, I know this movie, why do I know this movie? The cast list, I'll give you the cast list here. Jan Michael Vincent... Sybil okay, Shepherd. this is on, not the Andre Zagvanitsa version. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no idea who that is. Haven't met him. Uh, Sybil Shepherd, Martin Landau, Raymond Burr, oh, wow. Neville Brand, and Vincent Chiavelli. Oh, wow. And it was the second movie I ever saw on VHS. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. Which, after the first movie I ever saw on VHS, which I was allowed to pick, because uh, we didn't have a VHS tape, uh, but a friend of my mother's invited us over and said you can pick anything there and i picked uh i believe uh space hunter adventures in the forbidden zone in not 3d because i remember some terrible looking flat 3d effects right uh and then he picked this one because he likes science fiction and it's an odd odd beast of a movie i'd kind of remembered it being quite quite you know, late 70s, early 80s, a bit down and depressing. I'd forgotten there's actually an awful lot of cars crashing through windows and things. I must have fallen half asleep. But the best use of Vincent Schiavelli, apart from Ghost, because he plays a man who was abducted by aliens and then comes back and is Vincent Schiavelli. And he's... <laughs> because he's got that look of, you know, that which just in the right lighting, and this one's yeah. badly lit, so it's even, right. you know, it's it does not flatter him like but it makes him scarecrow it makes him one of the creepiest things around wow. and it involves a lot of very 80s theories cattle mutilations ufos i couldn't even describe the plot if i wanted right. to but it was nice to revisit it it's definitely an oddity and if you were scrolling through tubi and you saw it it's got quite a quite a fun poster which i put up if i remember but um the yeah it's just one of these movies where i went back to and just went was that as strange as i remember because i was only about 12 or 13 I was half asleep and Vincent Chiavelli I don't think I'd ever seen before so that I was probably thought that was special effects at the time because he does have that that odd he did have that odd stretched face yeah so yeah it's, it's quite, a, quite an know. interesting little wow little sci-fi film a little time waster but it does have a little bit more action than I thought so one of these days <laughs> I'll, I'll drag it back out and throw it on at 3 o'clock in the morning to uh, during a beef fest just to scare everybody okay well that sounds awesome my um third one you're not going to go with that are you no cool uh so i did a big order from uh the recent arrow uh film film video sale and um but mostly picked up some stuff from their uh partner label second run that specializes in central and eastern european cinema amongst other things which sounds bland as hell um (laughs) but once you start digging into that stuff you realize how fully nuts it is Mm -hmm. and um so you put on a film like 
it has a kind of funny and expressive title like A Case for a Rookie Hangman. And you're like, what's that going to be? That's going to just probably maybe it's a little like mild procedural. No. Um, so <laughs> imagine that you've got uh, the middle of Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels and a soup con of Alice in Wonderland and a bit of Kafka. And you just put it all in a blender and then make it a fever dream. And then you've got Pavel Juracek's uh, film that becomes a potent political allegory that got him banned from filmmaking for the rest of his life. And then you have a beautiful Blu-ray release of it, lovingly restored, complete with a 16-page booklet that explains the how and the why one of the um, rising stars who actually wrote several scripts for other Czech directors at the time, including uh, Daisies and I forget some of the others, um, was suddenly... Um, banned from filmmaking for the rest of his life wow. by the regime. But, um, yeah, it's it's really... Um, and Darren watched this with me, so he... It's might, great. Yeah. <laughs> it's it, really great. There's, there's things that I watch that are obscure that I don't think anyone else will connect with and I don't really care. And there's things that I watch that I'm like, this is obscure, but in such an interesting way. I think a mm-hmm. lot of people would be able to connect with it because and it just keeps bringing its little idiosyncratic like choices like to make you know the mayor of the town like really interested in these nuts that he keeps dropping that roll across his uneven floor and just like little details it's like kind of like okay we've done six drafts let's just do another pass and make every scene 15 percent more inexplicable <laughs> and and it uh, is actually a version of gulliver's travels the lead yeah. character is the male gulliver it's yeah. um it's just he's just a guy driving around the czech republic one day or czechoslovakia yeah. at the time excuse me yeah, yeah. and it's but it's how to do uh, fantasy on no budget whatsoever or, or some budget there yeah is, yeah um, bit, some but it's they done had 179 a... shooting days or something nuts. Wow! I mean, welcome to East Central European <laughs> film production. But um, but uh, at the flip side, it's like there's a Laputa, um, the floating city in the mm. sky, and they just kind of get to it by people going up to this tower, and then they walk up what's probably the same staircase, you know, shot seven different directions. So they keep going, and then they go out in a door, and then it's like they're on this other place, and that's the ground. So. Yeah, you know, imagine special effects. If you can, yeah, yeah. if you can find a way to, you Absolutely. know, show that what you were actually doing without having to spend the yeah. money. I mean, you know, I've seen a lot of shitty CGI movies where it's just like, yeah, you show me everything, but I don't care about a lot of it. Yeah, there's an awful lot here which you know you could imply a little more. When but, they get yeah. to the town of Laputa, and uh, Doug pointed out um, very cleverly that it, it did remind him of the township in Jim Carter. <laughs> I, I would actually I would not hear a bad word against And I Jim was Carter. thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> Why he do you said think it? that's a bad thing? <laughs> that movie does look like a shithole, but <laughs> well, no, I, you know, I mean, but you know, to, even in a shithole, you can um, use gymnastics and martial arts together in order to um, make sure that Parmistan uh, permits an American missile defense system. See, that's what I love about Doug. We can get these amazing obscure films like Jim Carter. Jim Carter is, is definitely a, Jim a standard Jim We have seen shown that movie here so many times. And oh. any time I've mentioned, it's just like, should we put it back just, on again? Yeah, yes, there's I no guess. reason not to watch Jim Carter. Oh, I, like, I've only seen it twice, but, like... 
pretty much in any situation, if somebody said, do you want to watch Jim Carter? You should watch Jim Carter. When I used to get invited to parties, and that was a long time ago when I was in film school, which I I didn't party. I didn't really drink that much, didn't really care about parties. I would just wait till people got high, and then I would put on Jim Carter in the background, and I would watch as people's attention slowly moved (laughs) to what the hell is going on on the back screen of this. I did that with one time with Jim Carter and uh, Twin Dragons, the Jackie Chan. And the only time I've seen a party stop dead was at the end of Twin Dragons as Jackie Chan is fighting a dozen guys in a a car testing. I used to do this with Danger Diabali. (laughs) Oh, that would work. Party movies, best movies. Because, you know, if you don't don't really care about the party, there's always something you can chuck on in the background. (laughs) And you would normally get some guy drunk enough or stoned enough to go, hey, what's this? (laughs) Jim Carter works. Yeah. So what's your... uh, My final films... Um, <laughs> he's going to do eight of them yeah, now. So, to make it the other forty-three films that I watched this week are. <laughs> well, actually, um, it's really one big film if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one I wanted to mention, which I was um, put onto by one of my favourite podcasts, Pure Cinema Podcast. So, big shout out to Alric and Brian. I just love that that podcast and it was a and I'm sure they're listening <laughs> <laughs> well no but, well the other li- the listener would have to um, stop <laughs> listening so the others could so I don't think that works um, this was one that um, Quentin Tarantino mentioned was uh, he had great love for the remake of Stagecoach 1966 it's um, I guess so it's, that's the thing. It's a remake of the 1939 no. John Wayne movie, the John Ford film, and Stagecoach. I mean, where where on earth could you find a copy of that obscure movie? Disney Plus, it turns out, <laughs> right. is where you can find a copy of that obscure movie oh, uh, from God. Star, uh, the the Star Plus system, because it sure as fuck is not a Disney film. <laughs> it's um, I. This was another one that I showed the uh, the the parents, and it's um, I was thinking a lovely uh, lovely western because I remember Is this like the, the reverse of the paint your wagon scene in The Simpsons. <laughs> 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 oh, well, Clint Eastwood, Lee Marvin, shoot him off. <laughs> Gonna paint your wagon. <laughs> it's um, so I thought, oh, that'll be just a rollicking fun because I remember the original John Ford, and it's there's nothing too harsh in that one. Um, no. The very first scene is um, Indians killing um, uh, killing settlers and 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 it, it's uh, the and they actually do a, um, a scalping a scalping oh, okay. uh, so a, should we go back to the recommended oh, no, it's by an, Quentin yeah, Tarantino <laughs> it's an <laughs> axe in the back no no sorry not scalping let's let's put the scalp back, back on, on. let's right. get yep. some spirit glue on <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, it's a it's a um, an axe to the back, but but with plenty of blood. And yes, okay, Quentin Tarantino recommended <laughs> it, but it's warning, <laughs> warning. <laughs> <laughs> but it was um, but that is the that is actually the worst of it. There is no there's no more real gore. Okay. After that, there's still a lot of characters dying, but it's it's just. A Old really, <laughs> it's a really 
great western. It's yeah. um, it's got um, uh, Bing Crosby in a non-singing role as the drunk doctor. Um, there's red that buttons That sounds like in the it. best BBC spin-off of it. <laughs> <laughs> the drunk doctor. Where are we going to go? I don't know! <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. I've drunk got... doctor. <laughs> drunk doctor, huh? <laughs> That's more American. That yeah. works. Yeah. I think Dr. McDrink-a-lot is the uh, <laughs> title I'd go for. <laughs> But it's it is just a, tr- a tremendously fun and action-packed film. There's um, there's um, a bad guy who is barely only mentioned in the original gets is seen in um, in this one, and it's Keenan Wynn, um, who plays an absolute son of a bitch, and it's it's awesome. It is just. Um, what a surprise! Quentin Tarantino pointed me to a really good film. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's tremendous. And if you have Disney Plus or you know someone who can show you it, get them to show it to you. It's nice. it's well worth a watch. I barely touched on on all its good qualities, but it's it's really good. And I'm glad you mentioned Stagecoach. I've got a little bonus flick in one of the weirdest film experiences oh. I've had in quite some time. <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned Stagecoach. Of course, Stagecoach has got the, the classic scene where, you know, a person, a stuntman, actually climbs under the stagecoach and mm-hmm. goes underneath and was recreated in what movie later on? Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was going to say Under Siege 2 Dark Under Territory. Two. Possibly too. Uh, <laughs> completely blank that movie from my brain. So oh, oh, you uh, shouldn't. There's a great Eric Bogosian performance. <laughs> Amazing. I'll have to have a look yeah. at it at some stage. But, um, no, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they do the same under the truck. Yes. And they basically got a classic Hollywood something to, to do that. And that movie we played for the kids at school camp because they're all about 13 now. Oh, wow. But there was a bit of a catch because we had it on a DVD and they right. had DVD players there. And this camp's been there for oh, 30 or 40 odd years. <laughs> and the technology there hasn't really improved. So we had, I think, a 15-year-old DVD player and maybe a 20-year-old projector. And... Nothing that we could connect to it made the speakers go loud. So we literally played a near-silent version of (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark (laughs) with subtitles for 60 12 to 13 year olds. Oh, Jesus Christ. An interesting experience to be (laughs) be honest, because it split the room. Because there was someone going, one kid came to me and said, do you actually like these old movies? Yes, we do. The other half of the room had seen the movie before, loved it, and were getting quite aggressive to the ones that wouldn't stop talking. Right. There was wow. quite a lot of, shut up, we're watching the movie. And the only person I think that was completely out of either side was the one exchange student that didn't speak English and just fell asleep right. through <laughs> both the movies. But at the end of the movie, it finished, it got to the face-melting scene, it got the entire room. Even the ones that right. were talking all the way through, the face-melting scene just killed. The 60 kids wow. went, ah! simultaneously pleasant dreams kids and then the credits rolled and one kid clapped and that was my kid of course so (laughs) I've ruined him for dating oh a proud parent hey hey you you made him anything as possible (laughs) (laughs) fuck it I'm jumping back to the the one that I no rules (laughs) damn Yankees 1958 
It's um, directed by George Abbott and Stanley Donnan. It's a um, it's a musical that is bit um, I never heard is about. This a James Cagney one? I've heard about no. Damn Yankees all the time. It's no. something that's quite but often might produced American. in America. Yeah. Oh, you did, what gave it away? <laughs> <laughs> was it my accent? <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> well, I see we've got a Sean off here. <laughs> oh, has anyone got a shotgun? <laughs> a Sean off shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Damn Yankees 1958. It's It's great. Um, I'd never heard of it until about two or three weeks ago and uh, tracked the bugger down. And it's it's a very, very cool musical. It's really fun. Uh, it's about a, um, a baseball-mad husband. His wife is, is annoyed with him because he only, at, at four months a year, he just solely watches baseball and is just so completely wrapped up in it it's um and always yelling at the tv and he gets really really angry at it and um one day he says i'll sell my soul for dot 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 and then ray wolston's devil turns up <laughs> mr appleton who is fucking brilliant it's and it's uh, I'd, I've only ever seen a few episodes of My Favourite Martian. I haven't seen much of Ray Walston's young work, but um, he is just spectacular as as the devil. It's uh, great songs throughout. Um, he has a really good song called "Those Were the Good Old Days," where he um, remembers cannibals and Jack the Ripper and <laughs> trying to cheer himself up. Uh, and it's uh, and you've got to have heart is um, a song I've known for years but didn't know that it was from uh, Damn Yankees, Two Lost Souls, which I know as Sweetums and and Robin from the Muppet Show singing, so I didn't know that that was a part of Damn Yankees. It's um, it's a very fun, very entertaining film. It, one of the co-directors actually um, wrote the play it's based on, and he also wrote the script, and Stanley Donnan didn't. Um, he, he, yeah. Did he do the music number, direct the music numbers? Because I always think Stanley Donnan yes, is a musical director. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a musical director, but he didn't write that musical. Yeah, um, yeah so Damn Yankees freaking awesome well you know me i'm always up for good musical and you know yeah. it's, it's an odd thing i like ninja movies and musicals so yeah it, it, well it, i've it, got a ninja musical for never <laughs> <are>. <laughs> well, we, i think we found a hole in the marketplace <laughs> 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 uh, i'm sure if i look hard enough i'll find one from the 80s oh and i did see your favorite film of all time at the academy the other um, uh, oh god singing in, singing the, rain. in the rain yes yeah, so the greatest Which, movie of all time it is it's yeah. the movie i watch if i'm gonna go on a plane the next day because mm. if i Crashed, and I've seen the greatest movie of all time. Again. And it amazing on a big screen. Uh, wow, yeah. I just fit in three films. Look at that. Suck on that. Uh, we, right. Well, we, I'm going to squeeze in one last <laughs> one. I, just to give a further shout out to the Academy, who's been doing amazing yes, retro they programming. Have. They um, have. And uh, it's actually kind of ludicrous because it's gone. F- there's so many. To be specific, um, <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> that, um, that suddenly I'm having to. You know, make really difficult choices. Whereas before, it was just like, 
oh, another year where the, literally the only retro screenings are whatever's at Film Society and The Room in 35mm <laughs> and that, and maybe one or two films at Film Festival and that's it. And like the average month now at Academy is better. Um, but I've been really loving these film noir double features that they've been doing. And the film that really stuck out to me uh, was uh, Sudden Fear, which stars Joan Crawford as um, a woman who is a um, playwright who uh, stages a play in New York and winds up firing the actor. Uh, and then the play opens to much success. And then on on her train ride back to uh, L.A., the actor happens to be on board. And um, after some awkward moments, romance starts blossoming and... Uh, burgeoning and then um she takes him back to san francisco and introduces him to everybody and i won't say anything else other than that that does feel that feels like the point where where things where yeah yeah. shit starts to head towards the fan show yeah there a lot heads toward the fan and very (laughs) and and some and some telegraphed and some nicely telegraphed and then side swiped kind of ways um and one thing to keep in mind of this is joan crawford is a writer in this film as well. not I mean, she didn't write it, but her character's a writer. Mm-hmm. So she's... So first of all, one of the things I love about it is there are so many noirs with really vague titles. You know, the devil does this, or the big whatever. And Sudden Fear sounded really generic. And it's actually very specific because there is a moment where it just happens. And, you know, there's, there's some films that are slow, like pot boilers, where this one, she's just kind of coasting along, and then suddenly she has a reason to fear a lot. And from that point forward... Um, we are, we are interested. Yes, <laughs> beautifully indeed. shot. Um, I did not, uh, you know, I, I see the end, end coming. And, uh, yeah, there's there's just been, you know, there's been quite a few... Um, I want to say dumpster dives, that's not quite the right. But um, deep cuts that have come out at the Academy recently. Um, and they've got a mystery screening coming up on the 16th. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm booked for I'm, that. I'm heading to that one as well. So yeah, I saw Woman on the Verge of a Nervous, nervous breakdown. breakdown last night. Okay, yes, but you've time. already given 15. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good yeah, film. Yeah, it's a good again. film. Three Three more. More. You know who made good films? Yafet Koda. Yep. How's that for a segue? We missed your um, third one. Well, no, 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 no he, did, he did four. I'm like four. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck off. All right. Yeah, so... The reason for the season. Yeah. What was this one about again? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Since it's been like an hour and a half, <laughs> just to recap, we are doing three movies from 1975, where Yafit Koto received second billing. So Yafit Koto, um, interestingly, he is actually a very infrequently interviewed person, uh, and I had a hard time tracking down more than Wikipedia for a while on some basic stuff. He was born in 1939 to a Panamanian mother, father from Cameroon. Um, his father was Jewish, and that's um, where he got his mm-hmm. Jewish faith from. His mother converted. And in fact, he talks in the one podcast I found, which I'll get to, about how the first discrimination he experienced wasn't for being a black person, but from other black people for being Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, he started acting by doing summer theater in uh, a black summer theater in Cape Cod, where he was discovered by Judy Holliday. Uh, and in, in fact, he had a lot of connections to old Hollywood. And even though we think a lot of him 
about the 70s thing, I saw this great quote from him when he said, not many people realize that I was a part of the old Hollywood machine. I mean, William Wyler directed The Liberation of L.B. Jones, which was a 1970 film, which was the first time that a black man killed a white person on screen. Henry Hathaway directed Five Card Stud, which he made in 1968. Barbara Stanwyck was like my unofficial manager. All these people, I worked with Edward G. Robinson and Robert Mitchum. I came out of this Hollywood system of the studio, and I've got to tell you that anyone who comes out of the Hollywood studio system is going to work, and they're going to know what, know what they're doing. The system died. It's gone now, but I benefited by that experience and those relationships. Um, and so the Judy Holiday, all these things, I learned from this podcast by Mike Destacio called Real Talk, Talk with the Hollywood Kid, which is some guy in Boston who's on a radio station. If you listen to the podcast, the first eight minutes are like for furnace cleaners in Boston. And <laughs> from the radio broadcast, stick with it. Um, and so he's just somebody who likes old movies and likes tracking down old actors and getting them to talk about stuff and agreeing that the new movies today suck and all that stuff. <laughs> and and thankfully he has an onsider because he's a little bit like, that time you did that movie, what's that like? But his onsider seems to like bring out a bit. And so Yafet started like a bit like kind of and then quickly opens up and is is brilliantly, entertainingly blunt. Like he calls Norman Jewison a clown. He um, <laughs> talked. He uh, railed on Paul Schrader and Martin Best. He um, trash talked Steve McQueen as a deadbeat because when he moved into his apartment at one point, it was Steve McQueen's old apartment, and it turned out that like people would come to the door because Steve McQueen hadn't paid the rent and he went down to like <laughs> get um, some credit at the um, grocery store there, which I think is just kind of a common thing you did at the time rather than do a transaction every time. And it's like, that address, <laughs> Steve McQueen owes me money there. And eventually they worked on a <laughs> film later and found oh, that out. Um, all this amazing <laughs> stuff. Um, and he talked about um, when he did Live and Let Die and, you know, was the first black Bond villain. Um, when they promoted it, they're like, now, Yafet, we want to talk to you about how hard it is to be a black man in America. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. America's given me all these opportunities and I've been able to do all this stuff. And, and he wouldn't walk the publicity line that they wanted to do. And so they cut him out of the promotion of it. Um, and he thought, but he never really did many interviews because that was something that Barbara Stanwyck said is like, let the work speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And don't worry, don't don't promote it. Just do the work and keep doing the work and he did and obviously built this incredible cv that we've you know already oh, talked yeah. through some of the highlights even touched on, really. of yeah um you know uh, yeah we didn't even mention like um across 110th Tenth. street mm -hmm. or the nine seasons of homicide life on the street oh, which um he, he actually talks about in very disappointed terms on that podcast how he felt like the um character was just totally neglected and given no background and so he wound up writing some episodes for it to try to oh. build it out but still felt like it was uh, the character was just entirely an, an afterthought in the original development wow, of it well you certainly um, don't see that on screen yeah no he's well that's the thing he's i mean w w one thing that comes through in every Yafet Koto movie, no matter how bad the film is, uh, which we'll get to, uh, is, is his commitment to doing the best to yeah, making it absolutely. work. I've, um, I've never seen Yafet Koto half-assing it in a movie. Yeah. You know, no, you it's see the full some where you can every see, time, both cheeks. Yeah, there's yeah, some, some actors where you can tell they've taken that to pay yeah. for the house because it's, it's there. Mm. I mean, you know, I've 
seen some recently just seen some George Kennedy late George Kennedy movies and yeah. you can tell he's mm-hmm. he had he had something to pay for then and he took that dollar movie. dollar bills y'all yeah. yeah and it was get in and get out as quick as possible I think that's one of the reasons he quit acting he's just like I wasn't getting good offers and I didn't want to do Crap, I don't know why he did Witless Protection in 2008. But <laughs> apart from 1996, that, that was the, there were no movies after He did that. a lot of stage acting. Um, stage he, acting and some yeah. television acting. Yeah. But also, he he's a bit of a polymath. In 1967, he recorded a single called Have You Ever Seen the Blues? In the back side, side was Have You Dug His Scene? He directed a film called The Limit, which I haven't been able to track down, but it looks intriguing. And he's written at least 20 unpublished books um, oh, mostly involving a spaceship captain and um, the frequent uh, perceptions that he's had in his life of other dimensions and alien intervention. Whoa. So on this um, podcast where they say, hey, so alien, what was that like? Yeah, I working with Ridley. He's like, so I was six years old and I had this shadowy figure <laughs> appear to me and all it said was alien and I didn't know what it was. And then for... 20 years I kept wondering you know and it was scary and you know and and this story goes on for like five minutes um, culminating with him getting um, offered the film Alien and this confirming that this um, shadowy monstrous visitor that he had was the um, somehow a psychic projection or something of this coming into the past telling him it's coming and so apparently these 20 unpublished books are novels from the perspective of a um, you know a space uh, captain who encounters many of these things. Um, whether or not we'll see them, I don't know. Well, sorry to interrupt, but interesting you should say space captain because I believe I read recently that he was up for the role of Jean-Luc Picard originally. There's an interesting comment that he makes around that time is he like... He said, I might, because they talk about it, he's coming back. He's like, I might, there's some talk about Star Trek that's, there's been a lot of talk about Star Trek. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, when an actor is saying that, it's like, were you in the room? And then at the last minute they gave it to somebody else or did somebody tap mm. you on a shoulder one night at a party drunk? It's like, you should be in Star Wars, Star Trek and move on. He was actually offered the, apparently the part of yeah. Landau Carosian. Yes, and, and he it turned it down. Didn't want to be didn't in a, he didn't want to be in a franchise. He, he said basically yeah. he wouldn't, he would have been, committed to more movies and he wanted to continue to moving on he wanted so, to make brubaker, made that brubaker. Was the, yeah, yeah exactly oddly enough the, um, the, the the space captain one i, I heard uh, was watching a tribute video on this morning and an amazing story of alien he was apparently so intense on alien and so determined that parker his character was not gonna die that the director ridley scott started having to avoid him he would have to have a second assistant <laughs> director say He's at gate two. Okay, we'll go to gate three. And avoid him, and avoid him because yes. when he did talk to him, he would say, I could take that alien out with one punch. I'm not going to die. He was so committed to not you know, right. having been killed by the alien. Eventually, the alien actor, who was a big, tall dude with amazingly long arms, you see the backstage, the behind-the-scenes footage, he told, Ridley Scott told him to go, but he picked up Yafit Kodo, and there was actually footage of it, of him lifting him bodily off the oh. ground. And that's the only reason he went, okay, you can now kill me off. Right. But then he got upset because the alien's jaws were coming up, was biting a, um, basically they used a melon for its head. And he thought it was heading for his third eye in the center. And he got, apparently, <laughs> oh. he said he got quite depressed about it until he saw the footage at the actual premiere when he went, that's not my third eye. It's in a different spot. That's just a bald melon. So he was, right. he was like, that's the only time he accepted Parker's death was when he saw it on screen and went, that's fine. That's just, that's a melon. 
<laughs> intense, wow. intense actor, motherfucker. He's one cool motherfucker. <laughs> intense actor, intense guy, and sorry, I interrupted. Was there? Oh more? no, no. Just, just to note that um, when he passed away, he was living in the Philippines with his uh, third wife, who he had married in 1998, and uh, he was 81. And uh, yeah, and he's. I mean, it's it's amazing just the number of films that he's left that you know and. And yet, at the same time, he has this sort of semi-mysterious kind of that guy kind of thing to him, despite having such a distinctive appearance and speech. I mean, there's the famous... uh, Have you seen the Michael Moore produced uh, segment of him in New York trying to catch a cab? I don't think so. So he did a a show called TV Nation. And I think, actually, uh, a director had made this short film and Michael Moore packaged it into it that was of two people trying to catch a cab. One was a recently released uh, white person who was a murderer, and the other was Yafet Kodo. Oh. And, um, and so they just filmed at the side of the street, the cabbies passing Yafet Kodo and picking up this guy. Um, and, and then they'd be like, oh, maybe he looks threatening. So they give Yafet Kodo a teddy bear or something. <laughs> I, I think I scrolled past that on YouTube. It was, it was something called Yafet Kodo Can't Get a Cab. Yes, it's so great. It I is, will have to look that Oh, yes. my Lord. So... Um, wow. Now that we've talked about a little bit about the man, shall we talk about his work in 1975? Let's start, starting with his most forgettable. <laughs> Let's think, do that. I think we should some, talk about that. Yeah. Some films that are hard to find are um, a lost treasure, a hidden treasure. Other films <laughs> are shark's treasure. <laughs> Uh, 1975. It's directed, produced, written, and starring Cornell Wilde. And his ego. And uh, he also uh, wrote the theme song under the pseudonym Jefferson Pascal. (laughs) So he wrote the theme tune, sung the theme tune, stunk the theme tune. (laughs) It wasn't even a a theme tune, because theme tunes go over the opening credits. This one appeared... Out of nowhere, about 35 minutes in. (laughs) Money, money. (laughs) Uh, Now, he had the idea for this film in 1969. He uh, could not raise finance for it till Jaws. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. Musical score is by an insane metal detector. (laughs) It's just... a lot of beeping. Or just... A Pac-Man on acid. Yeah. It's just you, you could make it into the worst crazy. drum and bass track ever. It's, it's a lot of bloops and bleeps. So according yeah. to um, its characters and incidents are based on a lot of true accounts. <laughs> according to his own legend. Wild Boats it, have gone in the water before. <laughs> Wilde said that it was the most dangerous film he ever worked on. It's, uh, or d- maybe he just watched it. Uh, uh, or maybe he was a shark because yeah. a lot of sharks oh, get killed Lord. in this film. The, 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 there is, I, I was getting kind of worried at the end for whoever was in the surf because they ended up filming on a surf beach that no mm. surfer in their right mind would go. And there was some insane constant waves and they just yeah. threw a bunch of stuntmen in there and went, yeah, good luck. Uh, yeah. As someone mentioned uh, while we were watching it, is this a shark snuff film? <laughs> um, yes, is probably the answer you're looking for there. It's just... Uh. It's unapologetically, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, one of the most crazy, blatant, yeah. like, violent 
I was films towards wondering if I'd seen that footage before because I've seen Rene Cadrona Jr.'s Tintorera. I can't pronounce it, but Tintorera, and I'll never watch it again because the middle part of that film is legitimately the, exactly the same thing. Spearfishing sharks oh, for yeah, the film. Yeah, yeah. And that I yeah. thought, is did he just take the stock footage from here? And I'm pretty sure, no, they just went and murdered a bunch of sharks as well. So for, oh, And that was two years later. So, you know, don't fucking murder sharks for your films, people. I know we don't do it anymore. We've got CGI, but, you know... Yeah. This draws me, thank, um, actually, based on what you've just said, to the poster tagline. Warning. The shark footage in this motion picture is 100% real. No shit. <laughs> no trick photography, no mechanical models, no miniatures were used. Which is why the impending approaching sharks turn around after three seconds yeah. rather than doing what you Which want to do. Which is why the sharks are never in the same shot as the people. And when they do attempt to put the stock footage into the same one, it doesn't really work very well. Thank you, Mr. Interruptees. Oh. This film was made at great risk of life <laughs> and limb, and including those who watched the fucking thing. <laughs> For the first time on the screen, you will see the total shock of the most sensational shark fight ever filmed. It's just basically... It's not true. I mean, some of that's true, as in it is 100% real. Unfortunately, there were a lot of dead sharks. Including one they rammed into a cage and they made it look like it was still alive to be shot by Yafit Koto. Which I'm assuming (laughs) was dead beforehand. It looked pretty dead when it was in there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's... if it, if it came down to that and the, the roaring shark from Jaws the Revenge, I'll take the roaring shark. <laughs> Thanks very much. It didn't look realistic, but at least it wasn't a dead shark. Now, to I'd, give I'll you take a... Shark Attack 3 myself. Each <laughs> um, their own. Now, um, a scattering of plot words from the IMDb. <laughs> We've got bare-chested male, speedo, machismo, shouting, silver... Homosexual subtext, whipping, sadism, bare-chested male bondage. Rush out and see this film right now. I think you add stock footage to that. Yeah. You you made it sound much more interesting to some people Uh, than it actually is. Actually, you also forgot the um, anti-smoking and drinking message. Yes. This predates Minor Threat by a good decade. I didn't forget it. IMDb forgot it. (laughs) Now, Cornell Wilde, let's actually... uh, uh, He was born um, 1912 and died in 1989. Uh, He is... Actual name was Cornel Lagos Weiss in Perdista, Hungary. Films of note, uh, there's Leave Her to Heaven, 1945, which is a great movie. An awesome role for Vincent Price in there. High Sierra, 1941. The Big Combo, which is a great film noir, 1955. The Naked Prey, which is one of the nine films he directed, uh, and actually a really good one, 1965. And Beach Red, one of the nine films he directed, which is actually a bit of a yawner. Uh, 1967. It's a bit melodramatic here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a bit of a grind. But, yeah. uh, Shark's Treasure was 1975. It was uh, nestled between Gargoyles, which was a TV movie in 1972, and and I'm actually quite interested in this other one, is um, the Norseman, 
which is Vikings versus Indians epic, starring Lee Majors as Thorvald. I think I've read about that, but I believe it was in the Golden Turkeys book a long time ago. I think it (laughs) It really feels like it. Yeah, I think it could be. Robert Eggers' new film is called The Norseman, and I'd love it if it turned out to actually be connected. (laughs) Could they get Lee Majors for it? And George Kennedy, I believe, is in uh, the Norsemen as well. It's um, and other other natural Vikings. Um, so I don't yeah. know when George Kennedy's picking up a paycheck era began, but it was, it was definitely late. <laughs> I feel 70s. like it was like a good chunk of his career. Yeah, I've seen a lot of. Always looked very sad. Yeah. So let's dissect days. Shark's Treasure scene by scene because oh, that's oh, what God. the people so for, want. So for the first hour, nothing happens. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It is. It commits the most grievous sin that I can point at a movie. It mm. is dull. And Yafit Koto, as we always say, even in the worst films, is the best actor, but he doesn't get anything to do. For the second half of the movie, Yafit Koto sits and watches Cornell Wilde do shit. And Cornell Wilde is 61 years old, wears a Speedo, and that's pretty much it. He don't wear a shirt much. He doesn't, and he gets to sit and... He don't do cotton. No, he gets to splay and row, and we get to... (laughs) And the camera zooms in at the wrong time, and we're like, oh, oh, no, my You are God, creating you visual symphonies. Oh, visual, visual horror. <laughs> oh. It's, it is just a dull film. They basically, and, yeah. they try to manufacture conflict. Yeah. But basically just why every so often people start having arguments for the sake of having arguments. There's a, a long, the first half is, is, is the cigarette <laughs> argument. Yafit Koda wants to smoke. Kornar doesn't want him to smoke. He sneaks a smoke. They have a fight. He throws the cigarettes over. He gives up smoking. That's the first 35 minutes. And Cornell Wilde has a, a an accent like a, a, a cartoon character for Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> it's, it's not natural. Not it's there. some kind of Huckleberry Hound kind of thing. I'm, I'm a non-smoker, lifetime non-smoker, but if Cornell Wilde started berating me in that accent about cigarettes, I'd take up smoking <laughs> just to get it. You don't place. smoke, boy. <laughs> it's just so... Uh, everything. Uh, <laughs> it's an average. We film. loved this movie. The, the we, plot basically is that they go up hunt. to find treasure. They've, there's treasure. One one character has found a gold coin. They head out to find treasure. Four uh, escaped convicts from America have also ended up in Mexico. They somehow, somehow they teleport onto his boat. I kind of missed the whole like how they got <laughs> there. The, the thing that really irked me was that they went out and they searched for two weeks to find the treasure. Meanwhile, these guys are apparently in Mexico evading the law. The moment they find the treasure, that's when they discover the boat in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. I'm, they did I'm, I'm calling out. a bit they of knew, navigational bullshit yeah. on it, to be perfectly honest. But they did. They knew about. They knew the, about it. They knew about it. They'd seen the boat, and they'd been sneaking. And, oh, why am I defending this movie? It's basically like syndrome. It's kind of like me saying, "I know the Titanic is in the Atlantic Ocean. I'll just paddle around for a bit. I'm sure I'll find it in the next two weeks." <laughs> I, it's it doesn't really quite. Really this film it. broke Doug. <laughs> oh yes. So there's a moment <laughs> where, where a young man has decided that he is going to get his best supporting actor Oscar nomination for this film, and nobody's had the heart to tell him, and he starts complaining about the food and its fishy smell. 
And he says, I've had fish before, you fool. Crisp and flaky. I came from a good home. <laughs> that was when I lost it. Yeah, and there was still 45 minutes of it to go. Every character, uh, even the most minor characters, apart from one who, whose whole thing was just throwing knives into the deck. Into a boat. Into a boat. <laughs> and throw knives into For days and days. <laughs> it was boring knives. through. Five the whole months. film was boring through. But every other character got to have their little Oscar clip moment, including one of the escaped convicts who started, <laughs> I did da 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 and he did one line, and then he just kind of trailed off as if to go... Nobody wrote me a monologue, <laughs> yeah. but I'm having a monologue. I don't yeah. care. It's... Wait, but there's other people in this scene, and they don't have lines, and they're just looking at me, and let's <laughs> move on. And let's just is, pretend this never happened. Jeff at Kodo, and he's looking at me very intently. I'm, I'll, I'll stop talking. Scorpion Releasing has just apparently put this out on Blu-ray, I discovered tonight. Why? There's only so many DVDs and Blu-rays you can watch in a lifetime. You don't have to do this one. So we, wherever you found this from was, uh, I think, a Canadian TV broadcast. And in the lower right corner, they had drive-in classics. And no film has perfectly summarized. This should be seen as in a (laughs) drive-in. With somebody that you want to make out with, so you don't mind the fact that you're, you're not able. The film. That, I, that's the thing I never really understood about drive-ins. It's like oh, I'd be going there to watch the film. This one, I would feel no remorse. No, no. You'd be, even if you went solo, you'd be hopping out and finding another car. <laughs> it's it's not a, a movie that yeah. we. Will, I mean, if we if we'd ever had a choice and looked at a trailer for this, we we wouldn't have picked this movie. It's only because. It was the third movie made in 1975, and he made two fantastic other movies in 1975 mm-hmm. that we yes, will talk about. Oh, once again, segued the shit Segway. out of me. All right, well, so, I guess that means it's your turn. Okay, so it's my turn, so we're going to talk about Friday Foster. Once again, second build, Yafakoto uh, gets here, but he is second build behind Pam motherfucking Greer. And oh. that's her full name, in case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> PhD. She is actually a PhD now. Uh, and Pam M.F. Greer. I can snag this one because Pam Greer is, of course, one of my favorite mm-hmm. actresses of the 70s and pretty much of all time. If you don't know Pam Greer, um, I don't know why you're, you're listening gonna. to this podcast. I won't give the whole thing because we are talking about your effort, but Pam was uh, born in the 1950s. She was a very, very shy child. Very shy child because it was and it unfortunately came to stem from sexual abuse when she was six oh, and again wow. at 18. So very shy and withdrawn, but she actually, when she got to college, she became a cheerleader. So it's sort of made, so had to become a cheerleader to try and Break come out of her shell a little yeah. bit. And from there, she ended up, just the group she mixed with, she ended up meeting film students and it gave her the acting bug. And oddly enough, one of the other people she met at the time, and I didn't know this until I watched a little, uh, a little, uh, I forget the TV show from the 1990s. They would do a little 45-minute long looks at people's career, and it was always it was all uh, based on just female actresses. And she got engaged very young to a young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Right. Ah. And unfortunately, the marriage broke off in possibly the worst way I could imagine, where he had converted to being a Muslim. He wanted her to become a subservient Muslim wife. That was words out of his own mouth. And this is Pam motherfucking Greer we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and then he called her and said, I'm at the temple. I've chosen your new name. If you don't marry me now, I'm getting married to this other woman who I picked out today. Oh, whoa. And that was the end of that relationship. 
So, I mean... To be fair, I think that's a really clear-cut, quick way to end a relationship. It, it, may, not, it's, it's, it may not be pleasant, but at yeah. least it's not drawn out. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's whoa. not the best one. And she, her, her taste of men did, unfortunately, lead her to a couple of interesting relationships because she also was a, in a long-term relationship, well, a, a relationship with Richard Pryor. And she actually was one of the person that got him sober from his wow. worst of his drug abuses. And then, unfortunately, after about six months, he's relapsed. But there is an amazing story. And it was off a New Yorker podcast I listened to where they interviewed Pam. And it's only about 20 minutes. Came out last year on my birthday, which is a nice sort of late birthday present for me, where she tells this amazing story. And I won't go try and tell the whole thing. She tells a lot better. You'll have to go listen to it. I'll just say it involves her, a crying Richard Pryor in a dressing gown, an injured miniature horse in the back seat of a Jaguar, and traffic in LA. Uh, and it's one of the most interesting... That old story is... <laughs> one of the most interesting ways you can discover that your relationship is is not going to be working properly because somebody's problems, had personal problems have come back. But getting back to Pam, she, of course, started acting. She became pretty much the... Well, went from almost from modelling to acting but became the face of the 70s exploitation and produced, you know, acted in some of my favourite films. Yeah. So, I mean, we could start listening, we'd be here all day. But Friday Foster is an interesting one for me because if you compare it to, say, Coffee yeah. and uh, Foxy Brown, this one's got quite a light touch to it. If you look at yeah. Coffee, Coffee's quite a gritty film. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's even um, uh, Foxy Brown, which is, you know, considered one of her, her top films. Is got a real mean streak to it, and I, I I still love the fact that she's able to pull a gun in Foxy Brown, out of her afro, not out of her body, <laughs> out of her afro. But both those films have got a real seventies nihilistic mean edge. Friday Foster was actually based on a newspaper comic that ran from nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy four. Right, that was, explains a lot. Yeah, right. and it was the only the second syndicated uh, comic in America that had a African American female lead. And it ran all the way up to 74, and then this movie was made in 75. And the director actually did want to make a TV series of it, but that never eventuated. And the director, Arthur Marks, is an interesting one, because born 1927, very, very white, made about four or five very good black exploitation movies. So, um, some well, some better than others, I will say. Uh, he, he did Detroit 9000, for instance. Uh, I've he, still never seen that one. No, he did Bucktown, which is not one of the best, but actually is quite a decent watch. It's 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 not right up top flight, but yeah. it's as well worth 90 minutes of your time. And, uh, of course, this one here, which to me has, has just got pretty much the best black exploitation cast you could put together. Mm-hmm. Because right at the top you've got Pam Greer. You've got Yafikoto in a comedic role, basically. He is the comedic foil. And, and every he's time awesome. He's, he's a joy he's, to watch. He's yeah, because he's having so much fun <laughs> yeah, on the screen, yeah. and you can see it. The difference between his this, smile is so contagious. Yeah, mm. yeah, the difference between this and the movie that we just watched that will not no longer be named, right. where he just looks <laughs> bored because he's sitting on a boat, and here where he is getting to banter, and he's just he, my favorite line in the movie where he has a chase scene across the rooftops because every seventies action movie <laughs> you have a chase across the rooftop. <laughs> he's getting shot at, and suddenly says. What the hell am I doing up here? And it's just—it feels legitimately like he just said that on the on the spur. Like of the he, just yeah, he just realized. He just realized what an idiot I am. But you had uh, Godfrey Cambridge, 
my favourite name, Thalmas Rasulala. Oh, yeah. One of my favourite names of all time. Up there with Warhawk Tanzania, of course, in the uh, the pantheon of black exploitation. Eartha Kitt, Kit, as yes. Eartha Kitt. As Eartha Kitt. As, Kit, Eartha as Kit. the most Eartha Kittiest. And small appearances by Scatman Crothers, oh, yes. Ted Lange, and Carl Goddamn Weathers. Yeah. That yes. is a powerhouse cast. And Carl, Carl Weathers is uh, is silent hitman, yeah. silent killer. He's, he's great. He's perfectly cast in it too. I mean, he looks the part. He does a really great job. But everyone else seems to be having such a great time. Scatman Crothers as a sleazy <laughs> priest is, I mean, you, as you say, it's a bit of that, but I couldn't get the smile off my face. When oh, you yes. Just see him. He's, just, yeah. Once again, everyone having a good time. Eartha Kit just... Eating every bit of scenery around in her few bits. Oh, absolutely. There's a bit of feeling at a certain point like the. um it's an all-you-can-eat scenery buffet <laughs> going on there, actually. Yeah, sometimes that's not a bad thing. I mean, if everyone's yeah, doing it, if everyone's but, overacting, yeah. and but overwrought acting, it, it feels, you know... Eartha Kitt's whole career was built on overacting oh, yeah. in, a, in yeah. a very, very particular way. It's and Yeah, it's it's just a fun, fun film. Yeah, and to give the, the pocket summary off IMDb of the plot, because all you need to know is that's the cast, and if you like a fun action movie, you go see it. Yeah. At Los Angeles Airport, magazine photographer Friday Foster witnesses an assassination attempt against billionaire Blake Tarr and is drawn into a murky political conspiracy. I just want to say that Blake Tarr is an anagram for Bela Tarr, okay? Ah. <laughs> Which is the only time that Bela Tarr will be mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Now, um, one thing I, I actually noticed on this rewatch is... Pam Greer has no action scenes. She in all the other ones that we've mentioned, she is the action star. Mm. In this one, she doesn't take on any of the action because her character is not designed for that. No. And I, I really like that she doesn't just pick up a gun and shoot someone or try and uh, fight someone just because that's what the script calls for because it's not part of the character. Plus she does is steal a hearse which I think is an amazing scene. Yeah. It's just kind of, <laughs> you see somebody who you think's a killer at a funeral and you don't have a car you get the first available thing. I yeah. feel like there's a whole recurring theme of like getting the most ludicrous vehicles possible <laughs> that you know, are just really ungainly. Because doesn't oh, she still a milk she truck? She a milk yes. truck. Yeah. Leading to that amazing scene where she That feels like up. a comic book thing yeah. too, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. Um, but that felt right out of it. I did look up some of the newspaper strips and it, it did feel very much like they kept the spirit there. I mean, when she turns up and of course in the milk truck and what are you, do, what are you doing here? I'm delivering the milk. Smash! On the <laughs> yeah. head. It's, that feels so Or the guy in the... Uh, phone booth getting crushed is a very, oh, yes. uh, yep. which is a very effectively done scene. It is. Um, I, I feel like I'm not as, like I, the, what I wrote down at some point halfway through the film is not very good, but easy to like. Like there's, yeah. it's a lot there's a lot, there's a lot of shoe leather. There's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of wooden mm-hmm. things. There's a scene where Yafet Koto has to make a line of dialogue work where he's punching out somebody uh, by saying lines like, See spot run, and <laughs> and it, because he's Yafet Koto, he almost sells this just ludicrous like. <laughs> I, I, I yes, I I said can almost sell unsaleable bullshit. That's the yeah Yafet Koto brand, um, which you know he he puts to great use in uh, the film that shall not be named. Um, but yep. um, but yeah, actually the the whole I'd almost like to see it again, thinking of it as a comic strip turned into a movie because yeah. I mean that, I mean Ted Land for instance as oh, yeah. as friendly the, yeah. who was the 
the nicest pimp of 1975. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. The girls love yes. him. He treats them well. He's a milking he's, cookies he's, kind he's, of guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in every other... You look at any has, other has LinkedIn has more endorsements than any other <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> His Yelp reviews are stellar. Yeah. But if you, if you look at any other movie that had pimps in it in the 1970s, and there was a lot in the black exploitation <laughs> era, they were the scumbags. They were yeah. always slapping the woman around. No way. He's, he's treating those ladies. He's kind right. to the nine-year-old yeah. kids. Oh, yeah. And the nine year the sassy nine year old kid. And he's yeah. directly from the, the strip as well. So of course. he was a character from there. So So here's something I don't understand about this film is that it's set in January in Washington, D.C., and anyone who's seen a Bernie Sanders meme this year knows how cold Washington, D.C. is in January. Unseasonably warm year. And everybody is pretty much... It, like, and I, there's, like, barely any scenes at night, even. You know, it's, like, every day is, like, 14 hours of sunlight, and it's, like, kind of a mid-spring kind of look to you know it's just it, it, it just seemed like a weird cell phone to be like say, we're yeah. in a, a city that's habitually freezing that everybody knows what it looks like let's just set this in january everybody <laughs> knows that 1975 january it was a spring snack it was <laughs> it was hot everyone was wearing you know uh, artificial uh, man-made fiber so it was just a it sweaty, was a sudden time. sudden <laughs> summer burst in, in chicago uh, look I, I know i'm i'm dem- Demanding a lot for <laughs> Friday Foster. But, but Friday Foster does also it does yeah. it manages somehow to be light, but it also gets into the kind of because the Black Power movement was big at the mm. time. Yeah. So it does kind of touch on it, not as deep as a lot of other films, but into the, the whole kind of you know we've we've got the the quite unusual bit of the the, uh, the editor of her magazine yes. is an African American, and it's not really pointed out if he actually owns it or whether he just works mm. there, but. You think about a lot of other films. There's no way you would normally have that film, which is where the, I think a lot of the black exploitation films, <coughs> and I probably mentioned this in episodes past, really helped a lot of the black actors because yeah. most of the time you were fifth build, sixth build, you were you know non-speaking part. Yeah. And then these ones came along, and sure they were exploitative, and she, yes, she has to do a shower scene in this one, but it mm. gave these actors a real mm. chance to get up there, these powerhouse actors, and show themselves off. I mean, Yafit Koto was already an established actor but yeah. you look at some of the other actors around there and, and Thalmus Rasulala yeah. I just love saying that name <laughs> I'm going to say it again Thalmus Rasulala <laughs> it, it's uh, he was playing the richest black man in America <laughs> which is from the trailer it's uh, it's uh, the trailer oh you got to see the trailer because the trailer has got Friday, the sneaky, Friday. it's got the sneakiest edit you'd, if you haven't seen the trailer you love no. the edit where it, you know the scene you're talking about of someone getting crushed in the phone booth, mm. yeah. they show Friday Foster in the phone booth from an unrelated scene, and then cut to bang, I and you go, that. "Holy crap, she just got yeah. killed!" But it's and it's nicely done. I did that. It's not exactly the same thing, but I cut a trailer for a film called The Ferryman, which was and um, there was a scene of somebody looking in a porthole, and there was a scene shot at the opposite angle of two people having sex um, or in bed together, and. Um, and they weren't in the same physical place or in the same scene in the movie, but it's just like, oh well, this makes this seem slightly more interesting. And uh, <laughs> is that the John Reese Davies? Yes, that's though. the one. Oh, yes, I've never yes. seen that. Um, I saw it a lot because I had yes. to look over and over to find parts that could sustain a minute and a half trailer. Um, anyway, high praise indeed. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, 
Is there anything more to add on? Uh, uh, we liked it. We liked it, yeah. I, 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 this is probably probably my second or third time watching it. And yeah, I, yeah. I've watched so many Pangram movies over the years, I'm thinking, mm. I must have seen it. It wasn't until probably five minutes, and I'm just like, okay, I've definitely seen yeah. this, but probably not for years. Um, back when we used to have TCM, uh, on the, sorry, MGM channel, yeah. used to have, and they would play... These movies are a lot. Well, the incredibly strange, incredibly strange one, the channel. Have... Yeah, they played uh, different ones like that, but they they would yeah. be kind of a regular staple that would would turn up on mm. on early pay TV here in New Zealand. So, I feel like it's a bubblegum movie, and yeah. I don't think that's bad. I think I was expecting something a bit grittier in the in mm. yeah. more of like other black exploitation films, and that was your that first I'd watch of it. Wasn't yes, it? yeah, I right. hadn't seen it before, so I hadn't really. You know, it's like anything. The first time you watch something, you're calibrating it on the fly. So I think you know if it like. Like, if it were to play at Marathon and, and you know, we we're just a, kind of chilling out at 10.30 at night or something and it came out, I'd, be, I'd probably kick back and enjoy it fine, yeah. you know. It's, um, uh, I mean, I, the exploitation like, era managed yeah. to get so many different genres in a very compact space of time. because Top of the heap. Yeah. There was, <laughs> I mean, we, there was black exploitation horrors, there was black exploitation musicals, there was yeah. just everything that you could think of that could make the money was written and, you know, some of them were hashed out pretty fast and don't hold up pretty well and some of the disco movies have aged very very poorly um, cotton but... comes to harlem is probably one of the better written it's really good mm. yeah it really yeah, is that's when i did my de- i sort of did like 20 years ago god now um sort of a deep dive into some of the major titles and cotton comes to harlem and truck turner were the two kind of mm-hmm. non-a-list discoveries that i got really excited about there's one more thing i want to say about pam Grier. i know we're talking yafikoto but i've got to bring this up about pam Grier. there's a bit of a gap in her filmography i left this in because i want to show just how badass this woman is in 1988 she was diagnosed with stage four cervical cancer and she was given 18 months to live and in about two weeks from this record, she turned 72 because she kicked cancer's motherfucking ass. Woo! So, Pam, here's to you. Much respect. Yes. We'll just clink these completely empty glasses. Oh, oh. Two of which had tea in them. Um, because that's apparently how we roll that's, in 2021. That is how we roll. There's one empty beer can on the table. Um, and finally, last but certainly not least, mm. Report to the Commissioner. Uh, a 1975 film, which you we've probably figured out by now, since it's literally in the, uh, the film, um, uh, for which the premise is... Uh, deceptively simple, which is that uh, an undercover uh, cop gets killed and people want to know why. And so there's an internal investigation and the report to the commissioner. Uh, (laughs) Based on the second novel by uh, journalist slash novelist James Mills, who'd come to Hollywood's attention with his first novel, The Panic in Needle Park, which was um, adapted into a film with Al Pacino. Uh, the rights to this novel were bought by Frankovich Productions, which was run by M.J. Frankovich, a former football player turned producer, whose um, most famous title is probably Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice oh, that they wow. also put out. Um, he hired uh, two Oscar-winning screenwriters, Abby Mann, who wrote Judgment at Nuremberg, Nuremberg excuse me, and Ernest Tidyman, who wrote The French Connection. Um, for a director, they hired uh, Milton Katselis, who had began his career as an apprentice to Elia Kazan, uh, mostly made a name for himself with stage directing and first crossed paths with Frankovich for a film adaptation of the play he received a Tony nomination for directing Butterflies Are Free. Um, and then he did a second film, which I think was called 40 Carat, and this was their uh, third film together. Uh, 
Incidentally, a few years after this film, which is very set in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so set in New York. Um, in 1978, Kat selected camp for L.A. where he founded an acting school called the Beverly Hills Playhouse, where his students included George Clooney, Gene Hackman, Alec Baldwin, Michelle Pfeiffer, Tony Danza, and also Jenna Elfman and Giovanni Ribisi. And if those two names have a sort of connection to you, it might be the Church of Scientology, of which Katzlis was not only a member, but an operating thetan, and which his uh, acting school was accused of uh, being a recruitment agency for the Scientologists. Mm -hmm. Uh, He eventually left the church and died in 2008, a few years before James Franco played him in... uh, the movie Sal, which was uh, Franco's directed biopic about Sal Mineo from uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Oh. But back to report. Um, Universal released the film in February 1975, so obviously not really a uh, high award expectation slot. Um, to not very good box office and mixed reviews, uh, Ebert gave it two and a half stars. He wasn't a fan of generally of Michael Moriarty's performance, although he did praise a uh, late scene uh, between... Moriarty and Tony King is drug dealer stick in an elevator, which we'll undoubtedly mm. discuss, as well as a chase scene involving Bob Balaban, which we'll definitely Ooh, discuss. Yeah. Um, Bernard Drew for the Gannett News Service was substantially more scathing, describing it as a disaster for all involved, saying, In its lumbering, pretentious confusion, it is as boring as it is bewildering, as turgid as it is trashy. The motivations are so fuzzy and indistinct that they barely exist. The dialogue is so cliched-ridden and preposterous that the results are often ludicrous, but not ludicrously specific. When so good an actor as Moriarty has not only egg on his face throughout, but the whole damn chicken, then you know something is terribly wrong. May I just say to that review... Fuck off. <laughs> uh, by contrast, I might introduce you to L- Edward L. Blank for the Pittsburgh Press, who called it a thoughtful thriller, well underscored by an er- Elmer Bernstein soundtrack, with much suspense and a lot of compassion, citing the picture's best performance as Yafet Kodo. Mm-hmm. Nice. Which brings us uh, full circle. So, um... I think we know whether uh, Darren's team drew or team blank. Uh, now, uh, um, this movie rules, guys. Let's oh just, um, my, yes. Yeah, and let's th- let's give all thanks and praise to Kino Lorber for um, putting out a Blu-ray and resurrecting a mm. um, decidedly not well-remembered title, despite the incredible, again, uh, just a film with an incredibly stacked cast that I almost mm. don't want to discuss because there's some lovely surprises when you uh, yeah. are watching and you're like, oh, that's his first film and he's... Yes. Shall we... Shall we yeah, what yeah. the hell? Richard Gere. Um, <laughs> <you know? laughs> and a nice throwback to one of our very first episodes, Vic Tabax in this. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes. But also Bob Balaban, who I've only known as that nevish guy yeah, and more recently same. that guy who directed Parents, um, <laughs> which is... A huge trip of a film. Played but, it, played it. Beef is here. Yes, I exactly. I, yeah, I thought about praising it, yeah. that one. Brilliant <laughs> film. But um, he plays a disabled uh, veteran who is on the street and like has a piece it's of wood with wheels or something yeah. that he gets around on, and uh, which is the chase scene in question is him deciding to chase uh, somebody who... It's Stick, isn't it? Uh, yeah, he's chasing yeah. Stick, who Moriarty's trying to track down, and while Moriarty's gone to do something else, um, he literally just grabs on a taxi. And this is the point where we should note that it feels like most of this film was just shot on the street, maybe sometimes with people Guerrilla paying attention, tactics, maybe sometimes yeah. not. 
definitely not with contemporary safety practices New. in um, mind. It had in. kind of a Larry Cohen feel yeah, to it. With, with, yeah. with Moriarty and Cotto, also yes. very appropriate uh, yes. pairing, uh, both of whom worked with him. I don't know if they ever worked together. together I don't but think so, no. Yeah, Moriarty was in quite a few of his, and Cotto mm. was in Bone, which I mentioned before. Um, yeah, I mean, there's the, there's sort of the Rashomon kind of like telling a story from multiple perspectives. And for a certain point, that was a bit of a letdown because Kodo is such a big part of it, the story mm. in the first third and then kind of disappears from Vanishes. it as it goes yeah, on because about, of about 35 minutes the Rashomon-like mm. structure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, what did you think, Steve? Because I watched it with Darren. I actually so really enjoyed both, it. I mean, yeah. it's been a, it was the first movie I watched out of all of these, and I watched it when we were going to do this oh, a month and a half ago. Yeah. yeah. But so a bit of it, but my memory has gone a little fuzzy because of everything that's happened in the last two months. Yeah. But I definitely enjoyed watching it. Um, I really enjoyed Michael Mariad's performance because yeah. he's you don't see him in the lead very often, and he's such a twitchy actor when he gets onto that, mm. you know the that intensity that he yeah. adds to it. You could look at it, I can see a, a critic looking and going, he's going so over the top, but yeah. you can see that he he just gives that, that stressed mm. post-Vietnam Vietnam bit. It's just, but it it's kind just of built to that, though, too, board. didn't it? Yeah. Because when it started, he was kind of the wide-eyed ingenue, almost. Yeah. He was yeah. just sort of starting out, and he... Uh, had his own ideas and everything was was bees and honey and yeah. uh, but, but the moment he walks New into York a, beats a him New down. York New York yeah. cop one and the first person he meets is an old school cop played by Yaffa Koto. Yeah. yeah. Who I mean he's 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 such an old so school. So good. He, you feel like he's he's playing that almost like he's something like a 1940s hard-boiled cop. Mm. And just the he, the believability of him looking at this young hippie kind of kid coming into his precinct. Yeah. You know that kid is getting shit fired on him from every <laughs> angle, and I mean, can you imagine if they give it to a female lead? Yeah. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when those two start, you know, interacting at the start of the movie, it's just you can—you're really not on Yaffet's side because mm. he, you got to warm to him a little bit, and I, it would be like that if if he was an actual cop. He would walk in there, you'd work out eventually that he's a good cop, but. The first day you'd be thinking, what a man, monumental prick this guy. Well, <laughs> it's LG a bit like training day minus yeah. the, um, minus, the, you know, any of the major story stuff. Yeah. Just kind of the, oh, wait, I've joined this thing and it's like, this is not how I expected <laughs> policing to go. I, I um, thought I was making a difference. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I quite enjoyed the, the fact that it almost became multiple movies in one because you've had the, as yeah. you said at the, at the start, it was the, all about the, the, the two cops. And yeah. then suddenly we, we lose Yaffa Koto and we get the, the Michael Moriarty, Moriarty story. story. And then at the end it becomes a siege movie, in effect. Yes, yeah, yeah. very that complex caught me by movie. surprise. Did not that... expect that at all. I thought we were got to the, the scene as they got into an elevator together and I thought, yeah. well, we're at the end of the movie. And the movie continues for much longer than I was expecting mm. because yeah. it becomes a little two-person yeah. You know, one two person play almost. Inside and it's really compelling, theory. too. It, it's. And it does a good job of giving you just enough fragments of what's happened at the start, because you say as he goes on, but it the, it mm. starts with um, a bit of the aftermath of yep. the carnage that's left in the wake of this undercover uh, agent being shot and the. Um, the siege of which you describe, but you don't really know what's happened or how or why, or it all fits together. It's just, mm. and which almost puts you in a little bit 
in the shoes of the you know the commissioner is like what the, yeah what's going on here <laughs> um, and wisely it doesn't overstep its bounds in telling you what's happened so that you can go through it in real time and mm. and kind of um, really experience I think all the character contours of all especially with Stick uh, in particular a character that could just be this you know drug dealer you know get being given a lot of nuance and space to yeah. develop in that absolutely scene. absolutely and uh, and the commissioner is played by uh ronnie cox's boss and beverly hills cop um he he plays a lot of those types of hard ass characters and he always does it really really well it's it was just a it was just peopled with such a a new york cast yeah and it's it's a very as you say Stephen one Elliott, of most, is that who you're thinking of it probably yeah. yeah it's one of our most new yorky films we've watched we've watched a couple of real new york films but yeah i, I mean, love the, the, a good new york film and this was such a good yeah. like you know the city's falling apart we've got the cameras out there you might get hit by something if you go in the street we're just going to keep acting no yeah. matter what happens the chase scene people are going to throw that chase scene on the, the route scene, because once again oh, barefoot running over running over man. yeah and it goes for a, that's a long chase and you get to see a lot in york i actually started during i went we went the with uh, the the chase scene with the hanging on the back of cabs yeah I almost came up with a concept for us because everywhere I'm looking, there's movie marquees, and it's classic right, movie yeah. marquees. We could actually do a, a episode just based on those movies because there was some great. Yes, there right. were. I wrote a list really down, were. and in the last two months, I've lost the list. So, I'll have to watch the movie. <laughs> and we've we've forgotten to mention Hector Elizondo, who is oh, just yeah. awesome in this movie. As I mean, Dana Alcaz in there, William Devane in a typical sort of sleazy. Um, DA. You get the sense that it's just like um, it's theater. Well, yeah, because it's it a theater be. director, so it's just going to be like, New okay, York I'm theater. just going to take everyone from the last eight years who I've worked with, who I rate, and um, and then if there's any spots I need to fill, I'll ask them who they rate that they've worked with, and <laughs> I'll just give that. And and I, it's interesting because sometimes I struggle with theatrical acting and you know overacting or whatever, but there's something about New York in particular, I think, which it's a city with a big personality where there is no private space and you're always kind of on stage mm. anyway. And so I think it suits that. And I think the energy of the film really suits it. And also it's there are actors that within that context are still really able to contour and um, their performance. I feel like there's that dialogue scene where um, that's set at night with, and I, I again, it's been a while since I've watched it, so I'm forgetting all the details, but Moriarty mm. and Coda are having a real kind of just quiet discussion about, you know, how, you know, why Coda is using the tactics he is and all this sort of thing. And it's, it's not just all played at 11 as mm. some theater actors like to do, or some actors in general, hi, Cornell Wilde. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. My, my, my all-time favorite bit of where you can tell the theatre actors is one of my favorite movies of all time, Krull, yeah. where the British, um, 
theatre actors that are there to add the gravitas are delivering their lines as if they're in Shakespeare <laughs> from a long distance away. You're talking died. about Freddie Jones. I'm talking about Freddie Jones. <laughs> yeah, so this final scene before he dies, he gives, he gives he, uh, a total great. Othello. He's great. He's I'm delivering a line from over here. <laughs> well, we have... Now I'm dying. Oh, God, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even mentioned Susan Blakely, and I think we should. Yes, we absolutely should, because in a cast of so many men... Um, as, just... yeah, as this, uh, yeah, I was really surprised that I wasn't more familiar with her. What, should I, what do I know her from? Um, other films. <laughs> Thank you. Towering um, Inferno. Uh, oh, but, over the Top. There we go. The yeah, oh, yeah, beer. it was Towering Inferno that Towering I was from. Yes. But was this her first role or am I making that up as no, she's well? she's done 112 oh uh, credits Lord. there. Wow. No, okay. 1972 Savages was her first. Okay, it was still relatively oh. early. Yeah. Though. It might have been her so first So this is right after role. Towering Inferno. So. Yeah. Yes. And oddly enough, she played Patty in both of them. So look at that for ludicrously specific. Screenwriters <laughs> <laughs> just didn't we're just really gonna, We're just going to make connections to report to the commissioner for the rest of the season. <laughs> I would be perfectly fine with that. Um, I would just say the, the Alma Bernstein did a good line in funk. Because yeah. you, you don't put Bernstein and funk together in the same sentence quite that often, but it was a, it was a nice <laughs> mid-70s funk good as well. Good old no Alma, Al, funky Bernstein. No, what about the no Bernstein Bears? <laughs> Let's not go down there, Robert. <laughs> That's a Mandela effect showing up again. Friday Foster's oh. score, of course, was the, the funk uh, gold medal winner this time around. because, And odd enough, I looked up who did that. That was, um, I forgot to mention when talking about it, Luci de Jesus. Quite obscure... Um, but uh, when I looked through his IMDb to see if there's any connections, for instance, to Alma Bernstein here, uh, my favourite little bit is that he did two episodes of incidental music for the Six Million Dollar Man, and it was the Bigfoot episodes. Oh, <laughs> yes. So and that's something to have on your resume. Some choice hits from Susan Blakely's resume. Um, there was The Way We Were, just a little-known film there. There's uh, <laughs> Lords of Flatbush, so that was 73 and 74, then Towering Inferno, 74 also. Then Report to the Commissioner, then Shampoo as Girl on Street, uncredited. Right. <laughs> yes, I think this is one of her first major roles. So this is definitely... But um, culminating in the Concord Airport, 79. Oh, there Booyah. you go. Nice. Is that, a, is that a film worth seeing? Um, it, it's a film worth it's laughing a at. Film. It's a film, but once again with George oh, okay. Kennedy. And uh, uh, George <laughs> Kennedy in a sex scene. You don't oh, really want to see that in 1979. Airport 79. Airport, in Airport 79. But no, is, it, is the sex scene in the Concord? No, no, no. In the Concord? In a hotel on a road. Okay, okay, that's the least of one of all the things I could envision. But if you could imagine the bouncing I'm just imagining an air Kennedy. Well, like, there's not like... that much room in a Concord cockpit, I would have imagined. He does, uh, I haven't seen it, but I have seen it. Please many. don't use he certain rolls. words for George <laughs> Kennedy. George Kennedy's cockpit is open for business. <laughs> I think, you know what, it's actually getting late. 